Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. Saturday, 5 p.m. here on the East Coast. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. And, of course, uh, joining me, as always, is founder of Dose Nation and, of course, co-host of the podcast, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. I think I'm ready to finally start the show. Yeah, so am I, after some technical difficulty, but I'm glad that we were able to get through it. So let me uh, introduce uh, tonight's guest. Ramaz Nam is a professional technologist who was involved with the development of some of Microsoft's most popular products, including Outlook, Internet Explorer, and the Bing, Re- and the Bing search engine. He was the CEO of Apex Nanotechnology, a company developing software applications for nanoengineering. He is the author of More Than Human, Embracing the Promise of Biological Enhancement, which details all the ways of technology, um, is extending the functionality of the human brain. His most recent book is Nexus, uh, which is a science fiction tale about the promises and pitfalls of creating a human internet where all brains are linked through wireless nanotechnology. It's going to be Welcome really interesting. To the show, yeah, it, it, Mez, it's great. Well, well, it's great to be here. And I'm and I'm just going to say fascinating topics right off the bat because because now we're looking into the future. We're looking into where things could go. You know. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, I've known Mez personally for a few years since I've lived in Seattle, but um, I really became interested in the work he was doing when he released More Than Human, which was taking all of these futurist transhuman ideas that he had been rapping about in his small community and kind of taking them large scale and incorporating a lot of the research that's been going on. And I wanted to start the discussion there talking a little bit about the field of brain-computer interfaces and how you got interested in that and what led you to writing more than human. Sure. Well, I've been a science fiction reader, like many people, uh, most of my life, since childhood, really. Um, And I also, uh, psychedelics, got me interested in science. So I, I read a lot of science. I'm uh, not a scientist, really. I'm a computer scientist, but uh, my knowledge of biology and neuroscience and so on really started with uh, psychedelic experiences and then wondering what the heck is happening in my mind, and that led me to more and more reading. And along the way, I stumbled across a paper in 2000 uh, where a group had taken a rat and put an implant in its brain and had trained the rat to move a robot arm just by thinking about it. It was a very simple robot arm that just delivered water to the cage, but they had basically uh, trained this rat to, to control that just by thinking, to deliver the water, which I thought was just amazing. It was absurd. It sounded like science fiction to me. So that got me interested in the topic, and then as I read more and more, I realized that there was actually um, quite a bit of work uh, happening in the field. Right, and um, more than Huber talks about um, cochlear implants, visual implants to help the blind, uh, cochlear implants to help the deaf, uh, this hippocampus chip that helps people with the damaged hippocampus uh, create new memories and retain better memories. Um, and one of the things that I was really fascinated by was how you really nailed the fact that the brain is an electrical organ. Um, can you talk a little bit about how uh, these 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 implants that we build interface with the tissue through basically a wire that sends electronic pulses. How does the brain interpret those signals, and how do we know how to send those signals? Absolutely. Well, a lot of this, we're we're figuring it out as we go. So the motive to help people that have uh, been rendered deaf or blind or been paralyzed is what's leading us to decode how the brain uh, encodes different types of information. 
Um, and it's been going on for a while, since the 1970s, actually, uh, with the origin of the cochlear implant. So with most people, the way that you hear, it's in your inner ear, so in your ear, you have these hair cells, and the hair cells vibrate when there's vibrations, sound waves in the air, and that triggers nerve cells inside the, the uh, auditory nerve fiber that send electrical impulses into the brain. So if you have a hearing aid, what it does is it clears up sound and it then uh, you know removes the noise of the background, uh, cleans up the sound, and plays the sound louder into the ear. And that works if you've got some degradation. But if you have absolutely zero inner ear hair cells left, then no amount of vibration in the environment, no amount of sound waves, will turn into what you can perceive as sound at all. So these guys in the 70s started thinking about that and said, well, we know that the, these inner ear hair cells, what they did ultimately is they sent a nerve signal. What if we could just bypass that and just plug into that nerve and send a signal ourselves? And they didn't know what the structure of the nerve was. They didn't know how it encoded signals, but they started experimenting with it. And the first cochlear implant was really a single electrode hooked up to a microphone. The microphone would pick up what was happening in the environment and it would process it a little bit with a little digital switch, a little digital uh, circuit. Now, wait, when you say a single electrode, you just mean one wire that one touches wire. the auditory nerve. One wire right. that touches the auditory nerve. Bypasses right. the drum, bypasses everything, just goes right into the auditory nerve, a single wire. Exactly. It's like, and it could be from anything. You could take a microphone, like a line out from your laptop, and encode it this way, and stick that one wire in. Um, and so they just started experimenting with uh, what frequency to make the signals that came across that, and they found that they could give some degree of hearing back to people. So and when now, you say frequency of signals, you're talking about tiny electronic pulses into the nerve. Exactly. And so how will the nerve translate those tiny electrical pulses? pulses into sounds of various pitch? Well, I mean, your consciousness, the way that your brain works, the way your mind works, is that you've got 100 billion neurons in your brain, and they are all kind of electrochemical, if you will. They are using electricity to send signals from one to the other. Um, and they, they modulate this by a small chemical molecules that shoot out, what we call neurotransmitters, but the action inside each uh, neuron, inside each nerve cell, that actually leads to the opening of the gate that shoots out this neurotransmitter molecule is actually an electrical impulse that travels down the nerve cell. So it turns out if you just take a neuron uh, in a petri dish and you stick an electrode on it and you send a, a little pulse of electricity, you can get it to fire. You can get it to shoot out neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, you know, the neurotransmitters that your listeners are going to be familiar with. So in essence, that's what they're doing with any of these brain implants. They're touching neurons, they're getting a jolt of electricity, and that's causing the neuron to fire and shoot out its neurotransmitters to the next neurons down the line. And they're encoding all this information purely with frequency modulation, which is the speed of the little pulses that are sent into the nerve. With the very first one they were, and now with modern systems, it's a combination of which neurons do you want to make fire, and then how often, you know, frequency. Mm, okay. So it's more targeted, but still frequency it's modulation. More targeted. And maybe it's easier to think about it in terms of the visual cortex and the visual prostheses, um, because we can we understand vision in a certain sense intuitively better. Um, so it turns out that in the, in the back of your skull is your primary visual cortex. That's the part of your brain that's responsible for 
um, processing visual information. Okay? And there, uh, things are arranged fairly grid-like, not perfectly, but uh, they're arranged in enough of a grid that when, if you're looking at a screen that has a bright yellow triangle on it, a roughly triangular shaped area of your primary visual cortex is going to light up. By light up, I mean there's going to be more activity in those neurons. So with, right, and uh, you, can map, you can map that with an MRI. You can actually see somebody's visual cortex light up with that, that, that the signal that it's looking at a, like a white triangle, for instance. Exactly. So you can ask the question, if we want someone to see a triangle, um, but they don't have any eyes, let's say, or they, their eyes have been destroyed by disease or injury, um, what if we actually stimulated neurons in a triangular pattern in the visual cortex? By stimulated, I mean send a jolt of electricity into them and make them fire, which we know that they do when you look at a triangle. And it turns out, when you do that, the person who's being stimulated reports that they see a triangle. Um, so we just were kind of decoding how the brain uh, operates, what patterns of brain activity mean what sort of cognition, or at least what sort of senses, and then we're um, reverse engineering that and causing that. We're inducing the pattern of brain activity that we want to see to send information into the brain. Now let me ask you one, one question that you can maybe riff on for just a little bit. Is the way that the brain encodes information ultimately way simpler than anyone ever could have imagined? Or is it way more complex than we ever thought? Uh, some of both. <laughs> um, yeah. It has some, some interesting stuff going on. I mean, what we've learned is that if you feed the brain very, very simple data, the brain will do something with it. Okay? Okay. That doesn't mean that there's not super complex stuff going on, too. And right now, so here's a, an example from science fiction. Everybody knows the scene in The Matrix where uh, Keanu Reeves says, I know Kung Fu. Or uh, towards the end, they need to learn how to fly a chopper. And the data is just beamed right into uh, <laughs> Trinity's brain. Right? Yeah, great. We have, I, I shouldn't say we have no clue. But we have like, you know, 1% of a clue as to what we would even start to do to do that sort of thing. Actually, even that's too generous. Maybe it's 1% of 1% of a clue. Because stuff like knowledge and skills and so on is, is very, very complex. But when it comes to like sensory data, seeing something, hearing something, even touch, and some of the output as well, moving your limbs and so on, it turns out that we can give you at least low fidelity experiences along those lines via very, very simple signaling. Right, and the brain can interpret the, these really simple signals fairly easily. It can say, oh, this is a simple signal in this frequency in this area of the brain. I'm going to interpret it this way. That's right. The brain is also but, very but adaptable. Yeah. Right, it's very adaptable. But like you, but like you say, like things that, like Kung Fu that take years of muscle memory and neural oh, plasticity yeah. that's built over you know, months and months of training, you can't just import that instantaneously. Maybe someday. In the muscle memory, that's a whole separate topic. But even just the skills and so on, uh, or you know, if we wanted to teach you how to speak Chinese, right? That is just so complicated. It's going to be orders and orders of magnitude more information. You're talking about many areas of the brain at that point. Many areas of the brain and extremely, extremely complex patterns. So we'd have to get in there. Now let's talk a little bit about this um, something that seems so uh, unique to me. Uh, it, it's almost impossible. This this hippocampus chip that allows people with hippocampal damage to bypass 
the lesion area and somehow through this chip encode new memories. That's right. Uh, can you, can you, do you know the basics of how that works? I mean, I look at the chip and it seems so simple. Is there a digital transformation going on in the, in the packet trans, in the packet translation? Or is it just a straight analog signal through this, this chip? Sure. So, so this chip has not been tried in humans yet, but it's been tried successfully in rats. Okay, so what it is is the hippocampus is part of your brain that's important for encoding memory. It's not where all memories are stored or anything like that, but when you're experiencing something new, um, before that new stimulus can be stored as a memory, which happens across many parts of the brain, the bottleneck is the hippocampus. It has to go through there, at least for most types, as we understand it. It's like a, it's like a listing queue where everything that you need to remember goes through. Everything important needs to go through the hippocampus. Sure, something like that, yeah. Um, so in people who've had some sort of brain injury to that area of the brain, the hippocampus, they often have problems with memory. They have problems learning new things. They have problems remembering old things they used to know. So scientists are thinking about, hey, can we... Um, fix that in some way? Can we build a chip that looks and acts like it's part of the hippocampus and put it in the brain in the place of damaged hippocampus tissue? So they've done this in rats. They take rats that have a damaged part of the hippocampus and they stick in a hippocampal chip. Um, the hippocampal chip itself is structured. It's a digital chip, but it's, okay. its pattern of circuits is designed to just mimic the way the hippocampus works. So the so the hippocampus has some sort of uh, grid-like or braided structure that the chip basically mimics. So that exactly the we don't the same yeah, way. These guys would not say that they understand how memory works. Okay, that's not what they they've done here. What they've done is they've taken the structure in the brain that's responsible for encoding memories and they've built something that's structured the same way. So just and it just has the same kind of same kind of uh, array, basically. That's right. Exactly. Um, and, and because it, and because it's this, it sends information and sends and receives information in the same type of array. The brain can get that information from that array and say, "Oh, I'm a fil- I'm familiar with the way this information is encoded. I can do something with it." Exactly. And yeah. in the rats, it works. And in fact. It works so well that not only can they um, repair the damaged memory of these rats, or their damaged ability to learn, let's say. So they so they take rats and they give them a lesion in their hippocampus so they can't learn. That's and right. Then they, and then they put the chip in and they run them through the memory tests again, and what happens? And they learn. They learn uh, as well as uh, rats that didn't have any damage to their brains, and in many cases they learn better than rats that did have damage to their brains. So they learn better than rats that were perfectly normal, that never had That's any right. That's right. They are, in a certain sense, they are uh, super rats. They're rats with super memories. So you have super memory rats. Is there any way, um, and I don't know if this is possible now, but I, I think I, I may have been talking about this to somebody else. Um, is there any way to record what is going through the hippocampus chip so you can see what it is the rat is learning or at least Ab- record Absolutely. We can record it and they do. Um, and that's vital and that's one of the big ways it will pay off is in the things that we'll learn from looking at this. But right now I'd say they're recording it but we don't necessarily understand 
what it is but that we're data, seeing. But data is still a little bit mysterious. Yes. So if you if I showed you a recording from the campus ship and said, hey, what is this rat learning? Is it in a water maze or is it experiencing a new object? Is it learning where the cheese is? You wouldn't know, right? And scientists wouldn't necessarily know. Um, but data collection is the first step in being able to decipher those things. Right, and then you have to find some kind of analytical algorithm that, that, that makes very good comparisons. And, exactly. And so, Jake, did you want to jump Yeah, well, jump I something? So, if you want to, so, so, so you're talking about these chips that, that could improve the memory, right? So, so for, if, if implanted in a, in a human being, could you then have superhuman memory? That's the implication. Um, you know, we're still a long ways from there, and it's always, you always want to caution when talking about work that's done in animals and how well will it apply and scale to humans. But we've certainly shown that at least in principle it's possible to do so. Now, how long will it take to, to port this to humans? Probably a long time. You know, we're very right. careful with putting things in human brains uh, because of all the damage that you can do. Well, not only that, but I but I also think that there are certain ethical concerns that that come along with, um, you know, the integration of technology in the body. Um, like, uh, you know, especially when when you talk about recording memories and things like that. Um, you know, ha somebody being able to literally view someone's memories, you know, um, could could always be used for nefarious purposes, if it were ever to reach that kind of level. Of course, yeah. So um, that's where mine main. What are your thoughts on sort of the ethical concerns of implementing this in humans as opposed to, I mean, of course it's medically risky, but as far as the ethical side of it goes. Well, okay, so let's be clear on what the, the initial scenario is going to be. The reason this is being developed is not to create superhumans. Right? The reason it's being developed is there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in just the U.S. and probably millions around the world that have memories that have been damaged by some, you know, a fall, from a height, a blow to the head, even severe infectious disease in some cases. A stroke, maybe. Stroke, that's a great example. Right. So these are people that have a kind of sub-normal memory, if you will. And the first people who will get, the first humans that will get this sort of implant, will be getting it to restore their memories uh, back to normal levels, or at least closer to normal levels. Um, so what are the ethical kind of questions there? Well, the first question is, you know, are you able to help people? And that's kind of the overriding one. Um, and then you do get questions of uh, ranging from, hey, if we could make people's memories better than normal, would that be fair? Would that be moral? Would that be okay? Um, anytime you're putting uh, a new digital system into a human, you'll have questions about what's the security of that? What's the reliability of that? What are the privacy implications of that? So all of those are going to come up for sure. And I think and that, um, we can uh, we can talk a little bit about um, the transhuman movement in general. Um, what what is your take on the whole transhumanist movement, the singularitarian movement, this sort of push to move? To, to move very rapidly into like a, a human 2.0 or a post-human state. Do you think there's a lot of hype behind that? Is there real phenomena behind that? Or, or you know, and how do you, how do you personally feel about that movement? Is it, is it a good thing? Is it nebulous? So I tend to not use the word transhumanist very much. Um, I'm referred to as a transhumanist. 
I don't exactly self-identify that way, um, and I'll explain why in, in a sec. Um, I'd say in general, there's a lot of technologies that are very, very promising for being able to enhance human abilities. They will arrive more slowly than uh, the most enthusiastic adherents or hobbyists in this space would like to see or talk about. Um, right. The development curves of technology that go into humans are much slower than the development curves of consumer electronics, and it's really primarily because we are so, so cautious because the cost of failure is very low, or is very low in consumer electronics, but very high in, in humans. You know, Apple ships iOS 5, and Apple Maps gives some bogus directions, and there's a huge uproar about the Internet, you know, or around the Internet, but nobody died as a result of that. Nobody had their thoughts stolen from their brain. Thankfully, right. Yeah, nobody drove off a cliff. Yes, so we are <laughs> extremely cautious in, in this sort of thing. Um, now, why don't I call myself a transhumanist? Because I think fundamentally, you know, 90% plus of humanity are transhumanists. What do I mean by that? I mean you take a person, you know, generally any person around the world, and you come to them and you say, hey, I have this thing. It's a device. It's a, a whatever. It's a medicine. It will improve your abilities. It will make you smarter. It will give you new abilities to communicate. It will give you more control of your life. It will make your children better off. And here's the price tag, and it's not too exorbitant. And uh, here's why we think it's safe. And here's some examples of people who have done it before. People in general will say yes to that. Like, so you're talking about anything from like aspirin to vitamins to eyeglasses to, to dentistry. Dentistry learning, learning to read to dentistry to iPhones to pacemakers uh, to bigger houses. You know, humans uh, like to see themselves, I'm going to do a college education. Humans want more comfort. They want more security. They want more capability for themselves. They want better lives for their kids. Um, so we're fundamentally uh, geared to aim for you know, both more success and so on in life, but also more capability in life. Uh, and that's what will actually move uh, transhumanist, if you will, technology forward. Well, actually, be two things. The R&D is going to be driven primarily in the early stages by medical impulses because we want to get back to normal even more than we want to get ahead. And then what we find out when we do these things is, hey, when we develop the technology for medical purposes, there's all these spin-offs or all the same R&D points to ways to augment people beyond the norm. And that will be driven by just pure consumer desire. Now, this is another thing that I, wa I wanted to go back to this ethical concern that Jake brought up, because I was just thinking about this when you said we're, you know, we're all pretty much transhuman. You could go back you know, 200 years and say, what are the ethical concerns about creating lenses that give people superhuman vision so that I could see a half mile from my tower in any direction and look into your house. I mean, that's you're talking about a, a handheld telescope or some binoculars. Whereas visual lenses, optic lenses, were designed to help people see better, help, help people with vision deficits see better. You could turn that into a superhuman. I mean, you can even just turn something as simple as like an optic lens into a superhuman uh, a, a talent, you know, being able to see far distances. And... Uh, so the ethical concerns really, I think, go into what is the technology being used for? 
And if it's being used for helping people who can't see, see better, then it's a, it's a fine use of the technology. But if it's using to spy on people without them knowing on it, then that is an unethical use of that technology. So there's a fine line between what, what helps humans and what, what we don't like when it comes to new technologies. Would you, wouldn't you say that's true, Mez? I would absolutely agree with that. And I'd say there's, there has never been a technology invented that I know of that isn't sort of dual use, that doesn't have positive applications that, can, that everybody agrees are good and applications or uses where we're like, wow, we'd really rather we, we didn't have that. And society responds by putting laws around the negative uses typically and occasionally not enough laws, occasionally too many laws. Um, but we try to get the good out of technology while uh, leaving aside as much of the bad as possible. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I know there's a couple couple sort of uh, side things that you're interested in, like uh, nanotechnology and clean energy and, um, you know, looking towards future technologies. What What is, what is, what is the state of nanotechnology these days? It's, it came in with a lot of hype about 20 years ago, and it's been very, very slowly building. But what do you, what do you see as, as the practical applications coming out of it? Uh, it's still mostly hype. Um, we have more and more things that are kind of happening under the nanotech rubric now that are real things happening, but honestly, uh, uh, 10, 20 years ago, it was called the material science or advances in electronics. Um, that said, I think the area where the most exciting stuff is happening is in what we'd call um, wet nano, which is to say that biology is already a rich collection of nanomachines. And those right. are things that are happening that are kind of closest to the original Eric Drexler dream of nanoassemblers and so on. They're not happening with little tiny machines with gears and so on. They're happening with people taking proteins or sets of genes and re-engineering those and tweaking those to the sorts of things that we, that we want to accomplish. Um, because there's all this existing technology out there, if you will, all this biology out there. Right, you say I need, a, I, need, I need a little molecule that's got a spring-like action, or I need a little molecule that's got a little motor-type action. You could find something in the biological world that already does that. That's right. And you can then take those, whatever the uh, the genes the, that spit those out, and you can make these, these tiny little machines. Now, what's the difference between that and biomedical engineering or viral engineering? Is it, is it the same thing? It's in the same area, but it's not always medical. Uh, for instance, one of the most uh, interesting areas in biotech, I think, is energy. So we have all these cars that are on gasoline. Um, fundamentally, gasoline is just compressed hydrocarbons that were ultimately, you know, the energy in them came from sunlight. So can we take sunlight and create fuels from that that uh, would power all these cars? Sucking carbon out of the atmosphere so it's recycled and doesn't contribute to global warming and so on. And that, if you look at you know, Craig Venter, who's one of the guys who cracked the human genome, that's his major focus right now is actually energy. Uh, George Church, who's a very transhuman sort of fellow, but also one of the geneticists who proposed the human genome, he's got a company that's working on this as well. So that's the kind of thing that we once talked about as an application of, of nanotech kind of manufactured from the top down. But instead, it's genetic engineers taking the nanotechnological capabilities of cells and tweaking them to try to achieve these goals. So and that's what they mean by wet. Are these, are these mostly machines that are, are used in, um, 
treatment of disease, like for medical purposes, or are they actually building, are they actually trying to build like tiny self-replicating robots of some kind? That, They're uh, starting with cells. They start with uh, like uh, cyanobacteria, sometimes called blue green, blue-green algae, or an actual algae, and they're taking these, and they're using the same toolkits that we use to genetically engineer stuff for medical purposes um, to engineer these cells, to knock out all the genes they don't want and put in new genes. So I'll give you an example of, of kind of the things that they're doing. Um, people have been doing algae biofuels for a while. You grow algae in a pond, and then you, once the, the pond is full of algae, you scoop it all up, uh, you process the algae to burst all of it, to get at the fats and sugars that are inside, then you put them in a big vat where you put in more chemicals and heat and so on and, and kind of refine it like you'd refine um, oil, and then you have a fuel that you can use. So these guys, Venter and Church, are saying, well, you know what, what if we just uh, did, did all that inside the cell? So they're tweaking the genetics of these algae and related uh, uh, single-celled creatures so that they actually excrete biodiesel or ethanol as a waste product. And instead of having to scoop them out of the tank and then grind them up and then process them in another vat, you actually just have them grow in their tanks, absorb sunlight and CO2, and then you turn a spigot and you suck out the fuel they've created for you. Um, and that turns out to be potentially many, many, many more times efficient, you know, maybe 10 times more efficient. And so that's an example of kind of wet nanotech, if you will, or biotech being used to solve a problem that's not uh, medical. Well, that's that's fascinating. I didn't know that they were using it to uh, to actually engineer alternative fuels. Yeah, that's, that's a that's a use I hadn't seen, I hadn't foreseen. But that's interesting. Um, well, let's let's segue into um, your book Nexus and. Nexus is about uh, a nanotechnology that's applied to the brain that allows users some kind of uh, interface to wireless technology. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Nexus OS is in the book and where you came up with the idea for how it works? Sure. Uh, the idea is that, yeah, the Nexus is a drug that you take. It's sold as a street drug. Uh, but really it's little uh, nanobots that cross in your brain, attach to neurons, and they all have little transmitters, and so they can transmit... No, 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 it's sold as a street drug because it's a banned technology. Um, it's, it's sold as a street drug, uh, it's illegal, but it's, it's consumed because it has this effect that people like, which is that if you and I both take it, these little bots are attaching to our neurons, and they're broadcasting what's happening, and also listening. So we get, uh, Cory Doctorow called it, weak telepathy. You know, if we were very close to each other, close enough to be in the range of their broadcasts, we start to tune into each other um, and feel what they're feeling, think what they're thinking, and so on. And so that is something that people are interested in. They find it fascinating, they find it enjoyable, and so on. Um, but under the covers, because it's doing all these things, and it's fundamentally a digital system, um, some people figure out that they can make it do more than that, that they can store data, at these nodes, they can use it to process information, and they can write software, they can write code that actually runs on top of all of the uh, nexus running inside of your brain. So you can write a piece of software, program for the nexus, take the drug, 
And then once the drug is in your system, you run the software and you feel whatever feelings you've programmed or you perform whatever behaviors have been programmed. Exactly. Okay. So it's a way for, it's not, it's, it's not, it's, so it's, it's both a mind control, it's also a mind programming device, it's a, it's a telepathic communication device, it's a wireless networking device. It's yeah, almost it's, this, this holy grail of, of drugs and technology coming yeah, it, up. It, it's, it's super fun, right? It's the idea that you can, yeah, you can use kind of software as a drug to a certain extent if you have a requisite hardware inside of you already. Um, and so that so by like, itself is a really fun topic. So, yeah, so it'd be like taking, you know, an L- taking LSD, but instead of, you know, just getting a random trip, you're able to write a piece of software that, that, that basically gives you the trip that you want every time. Sure, yeah, but What if I could sell you, like, hey, here's this, this, this uh, acid that's been pre-programmed with Gladiator. <laughs> oh, God. Gladiator, you know, or, or whatever it is. Here's Alice in Wonderland acid, you know, that uh, the, uh, the print on the sheet of Alice in Wonderland that actually means something now. Um, so it's something like that. And you can, you can imagine some of the, uh, the, the potential there and how people would eagerly be interested in this. Yeah, but you know what, if, if I may interject momentarily, um, the, but doesn't that sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say defeat the purpose of the experience, but by programming the experience, you're not allowing yourself to just sort of open up to your own heart, so to speak, you know? Wouldn't that kind of defeat the purpose of at least the entheogenic end of, end of psychedelics? Well, I think the idea is people are going to do with it whatever they want to do with it, right? Um, and so, it, in a certain sense, it's the ultimate entheogenic in terms of actually allowing direct mind-to-mind communication between people. So one of the things that, that people uh, strive for with drugs, almost a mystical property we ascribe to drugs that really doesn't exactly happen. It's just that they change our own individual minds. Um, but imagine that you had a drug that really did that, where, in fact, it, it actually allowed you to connect somebody else's mind. Well, yeah, I, th- I think I, I hear many reports of people who take psilocybin mushrooms who um, actually feel that they are in telepathic communication with the people that they're with, at least for a short period of time. It's wow. very commonly reported. Huh. But I, that I've actually never heard before. No, well, we talked about it with Crystal Cole. Uh, I, did we? Very briefly. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably why I don't remember yeah, but, it. And actually, it's, uh, psilocybin was called telepathing when they first discovered it. because Interesting. They, I, were, I uh, they were under, some of the scientists were under the, the impression that, you know, the, the stories that the shaman told that it allows you to see into other people's minds was just a, you know, kind of a metaphor for telepathy. So they call it telepathy. And, um, yeah, there's been studies done with psilocybin and telepathy, and there's nothing conclusive going on there. But it's reported often enough that um, I think it's it's kind of a side effect that either either telepathic communication or the very, very overwhelming sense of telepathic communication is is a, is a common side effect of mushrooms. Right. So, so why is it so? It's sold on the street. Nexus is sold on the street, but it's banned. Yeah. Um, but it's also something that can be used by hackers to, you know, gain access to somebody's mind or. Uh, um, provided that they've taken it. So, so in the book, it's the the drugs are illegal for uh, really two reasons. One is it's viewed as a recreational drug, and even though it has, you know, therapeutic and, and other positive purposes, uh, it, it's viewed with that suspicion in the way that psychedelic drugs are viewed in our society today. 
And two is the book takes place in 2040. You know, 27 years in the future is is not that far in the future, really. It's you know as far ahead of us as I think 1986 is behind us. Uh, right. But some things have changed, and some bad things have happened. There have been some uh, biotech terror attacks that have happened inside the U.S. Uh, there have been some cases of people uh, trying to go very eugenic, uh, so using technology to try to create uh, races of super beings. Uh, there have been other examples of mind-defending technology that have been used very effectively to control minds. So the response to this has been um, in much the same way that their response on 9-11 was a crackdown on terrorism and an abrogation of civil rights in the U.S. It's been a further abrogation of civil rights and a crackdown on certain types of technologies. So laws have been passed, international treaties have been signed that make uh, transhuman technology, very broadly speaking, uh, effectively illegal in most places and most scenarios. And so Nexus is viewed uh, as simply bad kind of technology. So in, in a certain sense, it's even more illegal than most uh, just psychedelic drugs. Now, how, how much of Nexus is, is science fiction? I know it's a great deal of it is science fiction, but if you project ourselves 27 years into the future, 30 years into the future, how many of these issues do you think are actually going to be uh, you know, on the political front burner? Like, um, you know, like biological terrorism or, um, you know, different, different ways of, of manipulating the mind with technology. Is, are there, are they, do you think there are going to be political battles fought over these things, or is it going to stay under the radar for the most part? I think there will be political battles fought over these things. So in the book, I think the most unrealistic technology in the book is actually the drug nexus itself. Right. Um, but the, the political landscape and the reaction to... Um, you know, advanced biotechnologies and so on, I think is not that implausible at all. Um, you know, we have uh, lots of questions about this already. When I wrote More Than Human, um, George Bush was president, George Bush Jr., and uh, he had a President's Council on Bioethics that was run primarily called you know, bioconservatives. Um, and uh, this uh, council put out reports on advanced technology, on human enhancement technology, and those reports largely concluded that uh, we should not allow um, human enhancement technology to be deployed because of these ethical issues. Uh, not even in a military scenario? Well, I think uh, that's probably the one that if it is banned, right, that's the place where it'll, it'll happen most. Um, but they certainly thought that for civilian use, that allowing people to make themselves smarter, for instance, posed all sorts of problems. Unfairness problems, socioeconomic problems, uh, meaning of life problems. I mean, one of the, the core arguments here was that uh, if you make life too easy, we'll uh, sap meaning from it. And so, therefore, we shouldn't seek to, to enhance ourselves or improve our capabilities because all of the meaning in life really comes from struggle. Um, That's the moral fiber argument. That's very Calvinist. Yeah, it was very retrograde. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, and ultimately this, this group was peatless, except for the stuff that uh, impeded directly on sort of abortion politics, the things involving stem cells and so on. Nothing much has happened there. Um, but as the technology starts to get more developed, I think it's not implausible that things will happen. So what do you think the, um, the likelihood of 
say something like this, like a like a wire that I can attach to my head that allows you and me to have a wireless telepathy, a weak telepathy. Um, say it is something as simple as just putting a wireless receiver with you know maybe two or three electrodes into an auditory nerve, um, so that we could translate signals back and forth. Uh, it, it, does that seem within the realm of possibility? It's that's eminently doable. So I'll just tell you another uh, experiment that's happened that went off very well. Um, as experiment, uh, a group at uh, Wake Forest University took two monkeys, put mm-hmm. them in separate rooms with soundproofing between them, and they each had wires in their auditory cortex of their brain, the part of the brain responsible for processing sounds. Right. And that those wires were connected to each other via a computer in the middle, with some translation and so on. And the experiment was, they're going to play a sound for one monkey, and what happens to the second monkey? And what they found was, hey, they play a sound for, for monkey number one. Monkey number two, whose brain is wired to monkey number one's brain, but who is physically you know, in a soundproof room, can both hear what monkey number one is hearing, and he can recognize what it is. They successfully did that. Now, where did they get the money for that experiment? That money came from DARPA. Right, that's a military from, experiment. Yeah, exactly. Course. That's a military experiment under DARPA's Advanced Battlefield Communications Program, where DARPA wants to see technology that would allow uh, soldiers to be connected directly to the brains of their squad mates and have intuitive knowledge of what's happening with the rest of their squad, what's happening on the battlefield, what, what data the drone's giving them, what data's command giving them, and so on. So that research is happening right now. Now, the, thing, the things that block us from being deployed are really, number one, it's brain surgery. So you just don't want to mess around with that very much. And number two, right now, the fidelity is low, you know, which is mostly, in large part, a function of how many wires can get in and out of the brain safely, how many neurons can you sample, how many neurons can you affect. Um, but it's, it's an area that is, that is happening right now. And it wouldn't surprise me if in the next 10 years, some pseudo-amateur person or someone just seeking to generate some press actually uh, does this experiment where they have an implant in their auditory prosthesis and an implant in the auditory prosthesis of somebody else, and they're able to kind of beam what they hear back and forth with each other. And That sounds right, like a Michael Persinger experiment. Pardon? That sounds like a Michael Persinger experiment. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And we can, like, the technology is there. We could do that uh, today. I mean, it would take you to set it up and yada, yada, yada. Would ethics would approve it? I don't know. But so, so all of that sort of belies the fact that, that, that consciousness really is this electrical system. And this, when I saw you do your reading for Nexus, somebody asked you, well, now that we know all of this about how computers interface with the brain and how it's an electrical organ, what does that mean for the soul? What does that mean for consciousness? Is, is, is consciousness really just an epiphenomena of electrical impulses, or is there a soul there? And it's epiphenomena, you... but I mean, I'd say consciousness is information. It's an informational process, and the information happens to be encoded electrochemically, but it also doesn't stem out of a few bits here and there. You know, your consciousness in your brain, in your mind, is the consequence of a hundred billion neurons that on average have a thousand to ten thousand connections to each other. Uh, so you're talking about an object, your brain, which is roughly a thousand times more complex than this galaxy is. You compare number of connections between neurons that you have to the number of stars in the galaxy, 
is a thousand to one ratio in favor of your brain. So it's a whole lot of electrical signals and a whole lot of very intricate information. It's that pattern. That's what's making you conscious. Right. It's the pattern of firing, the pattern of electrical firing and all in concert. Amazing. And um, so, so what do you see um, in, in the future? Um, I know uh, there's people can uh, use these brain scanning devices like an MRI. And if you put somebody in, a, in an MRI and you show them a lot of images and you record what they're seeing, when you show them another, when you show them a similar image in the future, you can record what they're seeing and then translate what they're seeing. So you can basically get a picture of what they're seeing. You can say, yeah. this person is doing this. Do you think that there will be, that, that there will ever be a scenario where you can have like a helmet that's wearable that can translate that kind of image right out of your head onto a screen? Or do you really need to be in an MRI machine to do that? I mean, we'd sure like it if there was some non-invasive way, right? If there was some technique that is small, portable, and does not involve uh, cutting open your skull uh, to get this data <laughs> in and out, it would take off much more rapidly, right? If you remove the, the brain surgery part, uh, you'd see people trying to move this today. And there are technologies that can get a little bit of data in and out of the brain uh, completely non-invasively. EEG is the one that's really used right now. And we have um, EEG-controlled wheelchairs, uh, EEG-controlled robot arms to a certain extent. But the EEG uh, is electroencephalograph. It measures the, uh, the voltage pa and the patterns of firing basically across the surface of the brain. That's right. Um, but it's, it's very low resolution. It is never going to get beyond a certain point. Um, so if you want really high fidelity... If you want to have that actual you know, telepathic experience with somebody else, for instance, um, it's not likely to happen non-invasively. Now, some people would disagree with me. DARPA also has grants out for uh, advanced technologies that would make it possible to do this non-invasively, but just looking at the physics of it, I don't see that on the horizon anytime soon. Um, I think the best we'll get is some sort of hybrid system where it doesn't involve cutting open your skull, um, but it does go into your brain. And in a sense, that's what Nexus is. The idea is, hey, the machine's actually getting into your brain, the electrodes get into your brain, but we didn't have to actually do brain surgery to do it. We just made them small enough that they could, that you would swallow them and they would cross the blood-brain barrier and get to where they want to go. And people are working on techniques like that, and I think that, you know, you can imagine where you take something like that um, you ingest something, or you snort something, or uh, we slide something into one of your blood vessels elsewhere in your body and kind of maneuver it. You, you go up through the nostril into the frontal cortex or something. Yeah. You and develop some sort of wear a helmet that talks to it wirelessly and extends its range and so on. That's probably the most realistic path. Right. Okay. Yeah, so it really does, if you really want the bandwidth, and the fidelity, you need the wire in the head. You need the yeah. electrodes in the brain. Yeah, I'll give you an example of why that is. Um, fMRI, the very best fMRI devices we have right now, their resolution, so one voxel, so voxel's a 3 version of a pixel, right? How right. big is it? That's what we see in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. about half a millimeter by half a millimeter by half a millimeter. That sounds awesome, right? Like, like really, like, wow, that mapping of the brain is fantastic except that neurons are so small 
that inside that half millimeter nanoside cube, you've got about 20,000 neurons and about 20 million synapses, connections between neurons. So yeah, that revolution is amazing. When you, try to, when you try to explain to somebody exactly how many neurons are involved in the processing of, of one pixel of vision, it, it really is kind of insane. It's billions, right? I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a very, very large number. So to get down to really seeing these, these neural circuits and decoding what's happening, we just need to have you know, much, much, much better resolution. At least resolution is like a thousand times better than what fMRI has today. And there's no uh, sign of getting to that um, any time in the near future, I would say. And the way the physics of this works is you have to keep cranking up the strength of the magnetic fields to get better and better resolutions with fMRI. And so you're talking about magnetic fields at that point that are ridiculously strong and would be, uh, uh, we'd have to isolate those, you know, in the middle of the Mojave Desert or something uh, to make it at all feasible. Right, and that's because the actual readings that they're doing in the brain are so small. That's right. And they need to pump up the magnetic resonance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, hey, Jake, do you want to, do you have any other questions before we move on to the next topic? Uh, no, I think we can move on. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the um, the infinite resource. You want to give, give a drop a little bit about what that's about? Sure. So that's my book that comes out in April, and the basic idea is we have all of these environmental and natural resource problems, climate change being the most obvious, but also we're over-pumping fresh water, uh, finite fossil fuels, all of this stuff. Um, what's the prognosis of the planet, and, and what do we do going forward? And the pitch is that the most important resource we have is actually our stockpile of ideas. That the right idea, the right piece of knowledge, the right technology, if you will, can multiply any other resource. It can substitute for labor, energy, materials, time, space. Um, and so if we innovate fast enough, we can overcome these problems and, in fact, end up far, far better off as a planet and, and as a population on the planet. 9 billion people, 10 billion people, much richer than the rich in America are today with less impact on the planet. So that's the, the thesis, if you will, and I go through a lot to try to uh, elaborate on that and explain exactly why that's true and, and try to course for how we get there. So this is, yeah, this is, uh, I want to I wanna get into this just a little bit because I think you and I, in terms of uh, our general outlook on technology and, and the human race and society, we see pretty eye-to-eye -eye on most things, although I think we could probably find a split here. I tend to view the fact that people are living longer and becoming more and more immortal and having more and more kids to be a problem. There's going to be a big resource problem as people start living longer and consuming more resources, and the older generations are competing with the younger generations instead of dying off like they're supposed to. Whereas you seem to, you seem to be coming from the perspective of no, as long as we can innovate fast enough, we can accommodate everybody. And I'm wondering, you know, what kind of, that's, that's, that's almost, uh, you know, you're going against the, the, the common wisdom there. What kind of, you know, hoops are you jumping through to make that, that case? Are, do you have examples? Definitely going against the common wisdom. Um, <laughs> if I should say, hey, population, group, population growth is actually leveling off. So we added fewer people to the planet in 2012, we did in 2011. 
Um, and as a percentage rate, it's been dropping and dropping and dropping. So, I mean, it looks like we're going to level off at a, between 9 and 10 billion people around the middle of this century is kind of a, the current prognosis, if you will. Um, so you think it will, the, the, the population growth rate will eventually stagnate and, and flatten? I mean, the growth rate is dropping right now and has been since, you know, the 1970s as a percentage and since the, the 80s or 90s was an absolute number. So the, almost all demographers look at this and say, hey, we're, we're leveling off right now. I mean, you look at Europe, Europe is below replacement rate across the board. There, there's fewer kids being born in Europe than uh, are necessary to maintain the population. Uh, Japan, same. China, same. Russia, same. Um, only the U.S. is almost the only developed nation that still has a growing population as far as our fertility rate. Um, and among all the big um, nations, only the U.S. and India, big economic nations, are really um, growing. And in fact, what you see is the richer a country is, and the U.S. is an aberration here, the richer a country is, the lower its birth rate. And the, you look at all the places where population is growing, they're poor countries. So actually, in a certain sense, the best solution for um, overpopulation is to help people get rich. Because if they get that's, rich, that's the economic argument for that is productivity. If if people are putting all of their time into the productivity of the economy, they're not at home having sex and, and raising children. Whereas I mean, they're having sex, but they've also got birth control. They're right. They've got birth control, and they don't have time for kids right now because they're waiting for their promotion, or they're waiting to move into a bigger house, or whatever it is. Kids can be planned around the career as opposed to you know there is no career and there really is nothing else to do besides right. and have kids in, in, in societies like that the kids are their wealth the children are their wealth that's that right. is that is their economy they have the kids to take care of them when they get older and, and absolutely so um so as we become more middle class we have less need to create huge populations of offspring to take care of us when we get older that's right and we we don't want to because there are other things, especially women. There are other things women would rather do with their lives when they get more opportunities. When they treat as first-class citizens in their countries, uh, or even when they get up to second-class citizens in their countries, which is a step up from where it is in, in most parts of the world, uh, and they get the chance at education and a career and so on, they end up choosing that more and more, and kids less and less. Um, so let's get back to the let's get back to the infinite resource here. And um, are are you talking? Um, are what is the book formulated as like a series of examples of the way that human ingenuity has has lifted up our level of of living and comfort, or are you projecting into the future as how to deal with ongoing oh, things like 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 the greenhouse crisis or uh, you know? This is the first third of here's all the problems we've got: climate change, freshwater depletion, ocean overfishing running out of minerals, feeding the planet. The second chapter is the power of innovation, how we've overcome problems like this in the past and what the frontiers are for the future technically. And then the last third is what do we have to do now to actually um, win the race. Basically, it's a race between the rate at which we're damaging the planet and the rate at which we're innovating. So what is the right course of action for us to um, accelerate the innovation rate and slow the, the damage and overconsumption rate so that we actually have a chance of winning this race. And there's, there's some concrete examples of that I know from my life. Um, you can look at the, the pollution rates in Los Angeles um, back in the 80s when I lived there versus now, and it's dropped dramatically. I mean, and it almost took 
it almost took uh, pollution becoming a public hazard for people to actually start retroactively doing something about curbing pollution. That's right. Whenever we've decided that something has to be dealt with, we have um, then innovated fast enough to do it. So, you know, back in, I think it was 68 or 69, the Cuyahoga River that runs through Ohio caught on fire. Hmm. And that was just uh, the last insult in a long series of insults. By that point, um, it caught on fire because factories and warehouses along its shores had been just tossing their trash, their used oil, their debris, their wood scraps into the river because it was cheaper to do that than it was to haul them away somewhere else. By that point, the, almost all the fish in the river had died. Um, it was actually the 13th time that it caught on fire. The previous time had been during World War II, America was distracted. Uh, the next year, Nixon signed the bill to create the EPA, and by 73, we created the EPA, the Clean Air Act, and the Clean Water Act. And now the Cuyahoga is, you know, as clean as it's been um, any time going back to, like, 1910 and 1920. There's 40 species of fish in the river. Uh, it's anything but a fire hazard. Um, and just because we put rules around it and said, okay, we have to haul the waste somewhere else. Um, another example is uh, the ozone layer. You know, we figured out that CFCs, the you know, coolants that were used Sorry, in... Chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah, chlorofluorocarbons in your refrigerator, your air conditioner, and in hairspray at the time and so on, were destroying ozone. And ozone blocks out UV radiation and if all the ozone in the atmosphere were destroyed, it would be much, much worse than climate change, actually. It would basically lead to a sterilized planet surface because that UV radiation breaks down DNA. That's how it gives right, you a right. sunburn. Right? Mm-hmm. So this is a, that was a truly existential threat to life, at least on the surface of Earth. Tremendously worse than climate change, actually. Um, so we said, hey, we need to deal with this. Big political fight ensued. The coolant industry uh, protested and said, hey, look, if you... Uh, sign this international agreement to phase out CFCs. Uh, you're going to have people dying in the streets because we don't have air conditioners running in hospitals. Medicines will go bad on the shelves. Uh, you know, yada, 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 yada. And in a certain sense, they are reasonably worried because at the time we had no effective and cost-effective replacement for CFCs. But we signed something called the Montreal Protocol that said, hey, the developed country is going to phase out their CFC usage completely. And within two years, there were alternative CFCs on the market because now this huge profit motive existed for companies like DuPont and Dow to come up with something new. And now, I mean, ozone has a very, very long lifetime in the atmosphere and, and so do CFCs. Um, so it's going to be a, a decade for it to fully recover. But now the ozone layer is looking uh, the healthiest it has in decades and is healing somewhat ahead of schedule. So, so, so it shows that if we put our minds to something, if we can actually observe a threat and make a case that, that we need to change, we have demonstrated the capacity to change in the past. Exactly. And let me give you a couple more examples about how we've um, scaled resources via innovation in the past. So you look at an acre of land, right? How many people did an acre of land feed in antiquity? Or better yet, let's turn this on its head and say, how much land is required to feed one hundred gatherers, say. It was about three thousand acres. How wow. many how much land is required to feed one American today? It's about one third of one acre. 
That's, we've done that not by increasing the amount of sunlight falling on the land, but by getting more and more efficient at how we turn sunlight into food. So we've tremendously, tremendously um, increased our ability to capture that resource. And even now, uh, the average field of crops, even in the developed world, is way less than 1% efficient at turning sunlight that hits that land into calories that humans can eat. So the headroom is also tremendous. Well, uh, James, uh, sorry if, I, if you were going to say something. No, no, I, was, I think we're, uh, yeah. we're running out of time. We're here. actually starting to run out of time. But, um, uh, Maz, before you go, let, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about, why don't you tell us about your website, uh, you know, where we can find uh, your books and things like that, um, and where we can find more information about your work. Sure. I'm at Ramez on Twitter, at A, or, sorry, at R-A-M-E-Z. And uh, my website is RameznaM, R-A-M-E-Z-N-A-A-M.com. Well, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's been a fascinating conversation, both a balance of the technological and the ethical. The, uh... So, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, it was good. It was good catching up with you, Mez. Uh, stay on the line after we're done, and let me ask you a couple follow-up questions. Absolutely, will do. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, listening to Dose Nation. I want to thank Sepia Radio for broadcasting and syndicating us as always. Remember, we're here every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, make sure you come back next week for more Dose Nation uh, at 5 p.m. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>